Hi, I'm Bernard Leung and you may know me as the executive who have been working 996 from my corporate day job to this podcast outside China. And in my spare time, I want to know whether the Xiaomi IPO was successful in the Hong Kong Stock Exchange. You are listening to Analyze Asia, the weekly podcast dedicated to business, technology and media in Asia. And today I have Tim Kapan from Bloomberg. Welcome, Tim, and it's great to have you back here on the show. It's nice to be back, Bernard. It's been a long time since we chatted. Yes, and the last time we were talking about Toshiba chip deal and also SoftBank, and this time around, we will be talking about the most important IPO that's supposed to happen this year. So, Tim, since our last conversation, what have you been up to? Well, as we record this, it's mid-July uh, 2018, and I've just come back from trips to Bangkok, Hong Kong, and Macau for the tech source, the Rise, and the Founders Conferences, which were all very interesting. I learned a lot more about Southeast Asia and also about the Asia startup scene. So I also had a chance to sit around some roundtables with some senior executives in the industry and learn some of their frank views on what's going on in the tech industry, startups, and of course, uh, IPOs, of which we're going to talk about right now. And of course, I want to ask you this time around in the RISE conference, uh, which are the people you have interviewed this time around, or do you do a panel instead? I did three panels. They're all quite interesting. One of which was with four executives in China, two were VCs, two were startup founders. And the topic of that was China leading the world in technology. And the surprising conclusion from all four Chinese was no, China is not leading in technology, but don't worry because we're much better at innovating than the Americans. I thought that was quite interesting. The other was with a VC called Anna Fung from a fund called Gen Fund. She's a kind of angel seed investor. And the topic there was discussing whether or not Asian funding rounds are out of control. And she said maybe, but she doesn't care if there's dumb money because it's good for her because she's an early investor and it just means dumb money comes in later and buys her out. So she actually doesn't find that at all. So some very interesting conversations arise. And I think you can find that all on uh, Rise's website too. And the reason why I asked you is because I think you have a three years record of people who you've been interviewed and they got acquired in the end. That's why I asked. Yes, so that's true. I interviewed Sonny Vu of Misfits Wearables a few years ago and I, I was a little harsh with him on stage about his business model. He just kind of smiled at me and said, no, 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 it's fine. And little did I know that he was in negotiations and a couple of months later sold Misfits Wearables to Fossil for I think it was $100 million or something like that. So he came out all right did very well. And a year later, another company CEO that I was on stage with also got bought out for uh, billions of dollars. I don't know whether that track record will uh, continue this year. We'll find out. I thought I should just add, Anna Fang was also on my show previously with Jen Bang. She works with probably the Ron Conway of China called Shri Xiaoping, or maybe Ron Conway is the Shri Xiaoping of US. And <laughs> she's brilliant. She's brilliant. Yeah, that's right. She's really good. I thought it would be it's very interesting that you're talking about the rise of China tech. And today we are going to be talking about the most talked about IPO this year, probably the Xiaomi IPO. To start, actually, we have covered this company many times on the show, but I still think we need an introduction to the audience. So maybe Tim, give me an introduction to Xiaomi and what the company really does. There's two storylines to what who Xiaomi is. There's the Xiaomi that Xiaomi wants you to believe, and there's the Xiaomi that's a bit more reality. The Xiaomi that they want you to believe is that it's an internet company that, while they do make hardware devices such as smartphones, is really more about services such as, you know, connecting all the devices together and selling services to consumers. Mm -hmm. 
the reality is that they are still a hardware company. Most of their revenue comes from hardware. The bulk of that is, of course, from smartphones in China and India and some other developing markets, but China and India are really most of their revenue. And then they do make revenue from other things such as wearables, battery power banks, and all sorts of other things. That's where most of their revenue comes from. They don't make a lot of profit from that, less than 5% net income margin on that. You may have heard Lee June came out and said that he's going to be so generous to limit the net income margin on hardware to 5%. That was a bit of a red herring because their margins are nowhere near that anyway. So it's not like he's really being that generous after all. And then the other side of that equation is that the profit, the actual operating profit from Xiaomi mostly comes from their investments in other companies, some of whom are within the, you know, the Xiaomi ecosystem, the companies that make devices under the Xiaomi brand, and Xiaomi takes a stake in those and helps sell those products. And in other areas, it's just pure VC work. For example, they took a large stake in Medea, the household appliances maker in China. It was a share swap deal done in around 2014, where Medea got a stake in Xiaomi, Xiaomi got a stake in Medea. Since then, Medea's shares have gone up like threefold and delivered a very, very, very nice profit to Xiaomi. Unfortunately for Medea, they were also bought into Xiaomi at, at the F1 round of financing, which was amongst the most expensive rounds of financing. And as of IPO date, only made about 35, 40%, which over four years for essentially a VC investment is not a great return. Uh, so really where Xiaomi makes most of their money is from VC. Now to continue that further, the, the Xiaomi they want you to believe is the services side of the business really at the end of the day is it's just advertising right? They're more of a Facebook or a Google than anything else. People like to compare them to Apple, which is just not true. They're not really like Apple in any way at all, except the fact that they make phones. I mean, they don't make a lot of margin on their phones, whereas Apple does. And Apple doesn't sell advertising. Uh, well, it does a little bit through the App Store and some other areas, but not much. Whereas Xiaomi's services business is mostly advertising because they have this hardware real estate that they ship out by you know the hundreds of millions every year. And then they use that as a platform to sell advertising. And the other part of what they do in the services business is games. Essentially, they sell games and make money from you know, in-game purchases and so forth. So if you were to compare Xiaomi to any company, I think the company you would want to compare them to is Tencent, maybe Alibaba or possibly Baidu, but essentially they're more like Tencent than any other company in China. That's a very interesting perspective. Finally, I hear someone actually trying to lock down what Xiaomi really is. So, sorry, this is the difficulty for me to come in to really understand the company. So many times I couldn't understand exactly where Xiaomi's business models is because sometimes they're the Apple of China, sometimes they're the Amazon of China. And now you can also think about with their physical stores, they can be called the Muji of China, but you're locking them now similar to Tencent in China. Yeah, somewhat. So how Somewhat. If you take the line that if they are an internet company, as they say, then they should be compared to Tencent. In fact, Xiaomi CFO on the day of the listing spoke to Bloomberg Television and, and that question was asked. And Chou Tzu just basically came back and said, we're a different species, we're a unique species. And that's actually really true. It's, it's a very unique business model. Whether or not you believe in the business model, I think Leiju needs to get credit for the fact that he has pioneered a very new and unique business model that 
and there is no other company in the world that operates the way they do. Don't you think that the, their ability to pivot and survive and go into a new business model very quickly makes them very formidable? They're a little bit anti-fragile because in the early 2015, they were in the spotlight for their smartphone success and subsequently it got plunging down because the rest of the smartphone makers like Huawei and Oppo Vivo chased up. What would be the way you think about them today? Are they seriously just a digital company or are they just a mixture of hardware, software and services company then? I think they are a mix of hardware and services. You can't really split the two because the services business is built on the idea that they get access to the smartphones that they've manufactured for other people right? Or for, for consumers, I mean. So they go out and sell, you know, 10, 20, 50, 100 million phones in a year. And every one of those phones have the Xiaomi Mi UI on it. And they have a, a number of Xiaomi apps on it and a few third-party apps as well, which, you know, they get paid to install. And that is the basis on which, that's the real estate on which they can build a services business. You can't split them because if they didn't sell all those Xiaomi phones, they wouldn't really have access to all those consumers. I don't see like an Oppo or a Vivo or a Samsung or a Huawei, you know, going ahead and allowing Xiaomi access to the phones that they sell to sell ads. It's not going to happen. They need to sell more and more devices every year and make sure that those people who buy Xiaomi devices keep coming back. They need that loyalty. And that's the foundation of the services business model. So if the hardware side of it, specifically the smartphones, you know, messes up or gets broken, if they don't keep getting that traction with the smartphones, then the services business would have problems. And I don't see any way that they can pivot away from that. So the, you really can't split the two. This is probably interesting in understanding Xiaomi's business. So I think you have already given a brief overview about where the core businesses really are. So how have they fed so far before the IPO? I mean, which business are really the most important ones for Xiaomi in order to go forward after they go public? Well, I think still at the end of the day, you know, the VC business, if you look at the pure numbers, it's the VC business in, in investing in other companies is, is the part that you could look at as being the most important. But the, the Xiaomi that we see today, you know, mid-2018 or even 2017 is very different to the Xiaomi that they want to create. And so that's where the tricky thing lies in how you look at Xiaomi. If you just want to take a snapshot at one point in time and look at Xiaomi July 2018, then you would have to say, well, the services business is, you know, not really that much. But if you really do believe that this is just the start of something bigger and they're building something, then I think that you would say, yes, the services business is very important. And that's the tricky thing. And that's why a lot of people are very wary, are very skeptical of the future of Xiaomi. I'm, I'm admittedly one of the skeptics. If this business model works, then it will be a game changer. But I've yet to see any proof that it does work. And that's really, really the question. There's the Xiaomi of the past, the Xiaomi of today, and the Xiaomi of the future. And that's really three different Xiaomi. You alluded to the point that Xiaomi is a different animal at different points of time. So there's a Xiaomi of 2015 where it has a lot of smartphone success. And then by the 2016, the Xiaomi of 2016 is that their smartphone market share got slaughtered by Huawei, Oppo, and Vivo. 
And then you have this Xiaomi of 2017, where there's a Wired article that talks about their ecosystem and how they brought themselves back to profitability after the smartphone plunge. I have this interesting thought: Are they going to be profitable, or are they not going to be profitable moving forward after the IPO? I don't believe they'll be profitable in 2018, and there's one reason for that, which is. Essentially, nothing to do with the business they're in. In the first quarter of this year, Lei Jun himself gave himself a whole lot of Class B shares. Now, to clarify that, Class A shares are the ones that only Lei Jun and his co-founder Lin Bin own, and those shares have a ten-to-one voting rights. And the Class B shares are the ones that listed in Hong Kong, which everybody gets access to, and and are what is now trading on the Hong Kong Stock Exchange. As a reward to Lei Jun for you know his service, Xiaomi gave Lei Jun a whole lot of Class B shares. Now remember, Lei Jun controls Xiaomi, so he basically gave it to himself. Now under financial rules, they have to account for those as an expense. So to cut a long story short, Bernard, because Lei Jun gave himself about 1.3 billion US dollars worth of shares in the first quarter, that will be expense to Xiaomi. Xiaomi probably won't be able to make a profit for all of 2018 purely on that fact alone. Carrying it forward to 2019, there is hope that they will break even.、Uh, but you pointed out that they really did have a rebound in their market share, especially India. That's where the big rebound has been in the last two years. But it's cost them a lot to get there. There used to be an online-only, you know, share product company. They managed to gain all of their share a few years ago by selling direct to public through online orders. They gave up their business model to open up stores, and especially in India. And they boast about the fact that they get a very high revenue per square foot or per square meter in their stores. But that's cost a lot of money. Opening up physical stores is expensive, and so I believe that they managed to grow their market share by dumping. That online only strategy, but the bottom line is that it's cost them a lot of money, and if they want to keep that going, they will need to keep spending money. So I think it's going to be difficult for them to make significant profit in 2019. At some point, they're going to have to make a decision: do they want market share or do they want profitability? And that's going to be very, very difficult because if they're willing to give up market share, which means not selling as many phones, then that's going to be very difficult for them to keep the online services business, such as ads and gaming, going. And so that's the internet side of the business. So these these moving parts that they Have to juggle, and at the end of the day, they need to work out what is their business model and how can they make it profitable. So I think 2019 will be another tough year for Xiaomi. Maybe they'll eke out a profit because of their investments. Maybe they'll eke out a profit because they hit a critical scale in smartphones. But I think it'll be difficult. And if they do make a profit, it might not be as much as people hope. Part of the reason is also because the Hong Kong Stock Exchange has just opened up dual class shares in the stock exchange, which Basically, given them the ability to now take on the New York Stock Exchange and Nasdaq, and I think having these dual class shares gave founders a lot of control. My view is that essentially what it's going to do is that most of the Chinese tech companies are no longer going to shift to the US for listing, but more towards Hong Kong for listing because Hong Kong is traditionally closer to their market. But coming back, you have floated eight charts to explain Xiaomi and their legendary founder Lei Jun. I want to hear you talk about some of these charts and what kind of Interesting conclusions you can actually draw from them. 
Well, the first one is very simple, and that is that they've had incredible growth in shipment numbers between 2016 and 2018, doubling in a few quarters, they doubled year over year, which, you know, whatever you say about how they they may have juiced the numbers or whatever, that's impressive. You know, it's a very competitive market. Huawei, Samsung, ZTE, although, of course, ZTE's had some problems recently, Oppo, Vivo. These are very strong competitors. And then you've got new entrants like even Nokia HMD who's coming in to kind of nip at everybody's heels. So I think that's impressive. It was not a profitable growth, but they still managed to grow. The other thing that I think is interesting is that their gross margins, which is how much you get to sell a phone for above the cost of building a phone, did also widen. And I think that's something that they need to be given credit for. But if you talk about Lee Jun himself, he owns 55% of voting rights, but, but that is not in proportion to the actual, what we call economic rights. So that's something that's very, very important. And the other thing is that he holds a lot of both class A shares, but also a lot of class B shares. And the reason why that is significant is that the class A shares will be very, very difficult to liquidate. He has to convert them to class B and then sell them on the stock exchange. Class B shares are already ready to sell once the lockup period expires. So at any time after that lockup period, in theory, Lei June could start selling his shares. I don't believe dumping a lot of shares onto the market. That would be very bad signaling, but that, that option is available to him. And so that's something that I think that investors need to keep in mind if, if they want to factor in a lot of the risk issues related to Xiaomi. And the final thing is I do believe CDRs will happen. And when CDRs happen, we'll get a lot of Ma and Pa investors coming in in China. The same people who buy a Xiaomi phone will be able to buy Xiaomi shares. And I think that's significant because because generally speaking, people will buy a stock of a company they like. And one definition of liking it is you buy their product, they sell. And so that will be a massive wealth transfer to Lei Jun and to Xiaomi because that will basically help Lei Jun get richer because if the shares go up, Lei Jun gets richer. So I think that's an interesting aspect as well. Just to help my audience, can you elaborate a little bit on the CDRs? Because I am aware of what they are about and I know that Baidu, Xiaomi are all exploring CDRs, something related to the Chinese stock exchange. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's a good question. And I guess a lot of people are not too aware of it yet because it hasn't happened yet. CDR stands for China Depository Receipt. It's similar to an American depository receipt. So what a depository receipt is, it's basically a piece of paper or a receipt issued in lieu of shares. So when you own a depository receipt, you don't actually own the shares directly. You own a piece of paper that is then kind of marked to shares that are held in custody by depository banks, such as, you know, say, Goldman or JP Morgan or whatever. So those shares are put aside and held in trust by usually a major bank. And then that major bank will issue the depository receipts. And what it does is it allows you to own shares in a company that's not actually directly listed in that country or maybe not even domiciled in that country. So, for example, if you own shares in Baidu listed in the US, you actually own depository receipts, not the shares themselves. The reason why that's significant for China is that China is thinking of doing China depository receipts. CDRs. And so you'll be able to own, for example, a stake in Xiaomi, which would basically be a stake in the Hong Kong listed company, but the depository receipts would be listed in China, such as Shenzhen or Shanghai. Now, 
one of the key issues there is that China does not allow shares to be listed on in China, such as on Shanghai or Shenzhen, for a company that doesn't have a track record of profitability. Essentially, you must have shown that you've been profitable for at least two years. If you haven't, then you can't list in China. Xiaomi hasn't been profitable for two years, so they can't list in China. But under the depository receipt ruling, we believe that they will allow Xiaomi CDRs to list in China because They've already done a primary listing in Hong Kong. So it's a nice way to work around those rules. It would also be a nice way for them to work around the fact that China does not allow dual-class listings. Hong Kong's just allowed dual-class listings. Xiaomi's the first company to ever do that. Now, dual-class listing is what we have with Xiaomi where... You have one class where the voting rights are larger than another class. A lot of company uh, countries don't like that. A lot of companies allow it. The US actually allows it. Facebook is amongst the companies that allows this. And so it's a two, it'll allow two ways for Xiaomi to skirt the rules by getting around the dual class listing and by getting around the unprofitability requirement or the profitability requirement. And so if CDRs do eventually happen in China, it's a way for China to get access to all of these hot global tech companies because there's very few big tech companies listed in China. Xiaomi would be possibly the first CDR. We expect that Baidu might be amongst them, maybe even Alibaba one day. And so if you see a lot of companies that are listed elsewhere, it's very possible that China will be allowed to or able to lure them back to, to China's bosses and allow Chinese investors to, to directly invest in them. And so that could be very, very significant for China. I think just now you have already brought up the story of Xiaomi making a great return with their investment on media. What is that about and what does it say about Xiaomi in general when it comes to doing investments then? I argue that they're actually a very good VC. The deal with Medea was a share swap about four years ago. And I guess we couldn't have predicted it at the time because Medea is it's, it's not a sexy stock. They do household appliances and so forth. And it, that doesn't sound sexy when you compare it to all the other things happening in China, like you know AI and surveillance cameras and all that kind of stuff. But it's done very well. And so Xiaomi made a great bet there. They've got a very, very, very big portfolio of companies that they've invested in. And they do see that as part of their business model. Xiaomi's CFO did tell Bloomberg uh, Television last week on the day of the listing that they do see investments in other companies as fundamental to who they are. It's not just some side business where they're playing with money. They see it as part of who Xiaomi is by investing in other companies. So we can't really dismiss the investments in other companies as being some extra, optional extra. It is part of Xiaomi's DNA. And we need to really look at Xiaomi in those terms, that it is an investor in other companies. I probably have something to say is that the current CFO of Xiaomi, Chu Shouzhi, is actually a Singaporean. And this is a pretty common trend these days as uh, most Chinese tech companies would like to have a Singaporean CFO because they are very trustworthy and accountable. And I thought I should just ask this question. Do you see Xiaomi becoming a soft bank in the investment side with the founder who started off as a super angel and now a corporate VC through his own company? I don't think so. 
I think that they will never get the scale of money that SoftBank has with the SoftBank, you know, the, the venture fund that SoftBank has, you know, $100 billion. I just don't see any other company being able to raise that kind of money. And I don't know that they're taking quite the same strategy. Masayoshi Sana SoftBank likes to buy out various companies. And even as we've noticed recently, I know you've talked about this yourself, Bernard, he buys companies that are even in competition against each other and then picks a winner. And he can basically make or break a company with all that kind of money. He can buy a stake in Didi and grab an Uber and then decide which of those that you want to win or lose and even help, you know, push them into mergers or so forth. And he's kind of dabbling that in India as well. I don't think that Xiaomi and Lejun will do that. But to an extent, there'll be a certain amount of soft bankness about the way Xiaomi works in that they do want to build an ecosystem. They do want to help use their money and their influence to shape the tech industry and the way certain companies will operate, but not at the same scale as SoftBank. So at best, maybe we could be kind of call them a mini SoftBank and have certain designs to do that. But their major business is still to do hardware and and do the, the internet services. So I think it's a little bit different in that way. I want to come back to the IPO. So what are the sentiments of the investors to which Xiaomi's IPO? I know you you are all thinking about China's moms and pops are now all wanting to invest into Xiaomi. Well, at this stage, it's been quite a first week. You and I are talking seven days to the day after Xiaomi's IPO. And wow, what a first week it's been. It dropped below the IPO price at open. Just to recap, the IPO range from the bankers was Hong Kong dollars, $17 to, to 22 Hong Kong dollars. That was the range. So the mid-range of that would have been $19.50 Hong Kong. They priced it at 17, which is the very bottom of the range. And that was widely seen as being, well, basically a failure. Then at the open on day one, it did pretty badly. It dropped as much as 6% before actually closing only down about 1% at $16.80. So not terrible, but to put that in context, more than 80% of IPO stocks in the tech media telecom space globally over the last five years rise on day one. So they were in the minority of having their shares fall on day one. However, the second day they rose 13%. The third day they changed, they finished unchanged. The following two days they rose again. And now Monday as we speak, mid-morning Monday, a week later, they're down. So it's been kind of mixed blessing. I hate saying that in reception. I hate saying that it was mixed because that doesn't tell you anything. But I would say overall people are forgiving it. And I think there's enough what we call long money, enough, you know, invested interest and wanting to see Xiaomi rise over the long term, even though there's probably short sellers who'd like it to fall. But this rise needs to be put in context that their, uh, their IPO pricing put them at a market cap of $54 billion. And at one stage a couple of years ago, people were talking about $100 billion. And even during the early IPO period, when they were building up the shares, we were looking at somewhere to $60 to $80 billion. So the fact that they priced at 54 was kind of a failure. 
But then again, if you go back and look eight years ago when they started, there's not a lot of companies that have been able to build a $54 billion business in eight years. So, you know, from a bigger, wider perspective, it's a success. It's just stumbled in the last couple of years. And so those who are negative on Xiaomi would be able to point to it and say, well, it was a failure. And those who are positive on Xiaomi would be able to point to it and say, well, actually, it was a success. So the way to view Xiaomi is really to consider your own lens. Was it a success or a failure? I think that it it could have done better. There's probably some disappointment. But early investors, I think they're pretty happy. Where do you see the future of Xiaomi? And and I have a follow-up question today is, what are the critical success factors that you need in order to win over investors for the public markets then? I see the future of Xiaomi still in hardware because they don't really have anything else to build it on. This internet services business model really does rely on hardware. So let's divide Xiaomi into three parts. The hardware, most of which is smartphone. The internet services business, which is essentially advertising and also games. And then the third part is the VC business where they invest in other companies. If you look at those three areas, they are interlinked. The hardware business model is fundamental to who they are. That's what they're famous for. That's how everybody knows their brand name, the Mi phones, the Redmi, the Mi UI, all of those things. That's what the Xiaomi fans, the Mi fans are all about. It's on top of that, they can build the internet services business. And it's because of those two businesses that they have a certain amount of chutzpah and also, I guess, credibility in the market to go out and invest in other businesses. They can go in and say, hey, we've got money, we've got this ecosystem, we've got smartphones that everybody likes, we'd like to invest in you. So they do really link into each other. But if the hardware business trips up at any point in time, if they start to lose market share, they struggle to keep selling phones, I do really think that the rest of the business could face struggles. Maybe at some point in future, maybe in three to five years time, maybe 2020 or 2022 or 2025, the services business will have built enough momentum away from hardware that hardware won't be as important. But I don't see that happening yet. And I think that they need to find new ways to sell their ads and their their, uh, other services such as games beyond onto their own phones. Maybe they'll need to do deals with other hardware makers, other smartphone makers, in which case maybe that can work. But given that they're reliant on their own Xiaomi branded phones for that business model, they really need to make sure that that part of the business keeps ticking over. Strange that you mentioned that their future is based on hardware. Doesn't that make them look like Apple? Well, you could say that for Huawei, Samsung, Vivo, Oppo, everybody else. But at the end of the day, Apple's business model is based on iOS, right? iOS is really the thing that keeps people sticky to Apple. Generally speaking, you either love or hate iOS. And if you hate iOS, you're going to Android. And so it's because of iOS and all the lovely things about iOS, you know, it works seamlessly from a, you know, from a smartphone to a tablet, now to a watch. Uh, You've got the iTunes ecosystem, the uh, App Store ecosystem, all those things that people like about Apple all combined into one. And that allows Apple to sell phones at an incredible markup. They're getting away with selling phones for $1,000. Like who would have ever thought that? But they get away with it. And that's a huge profit margin to them. Apple customers know it. They know they're paying a massive premium and they're okay with that because they get the whole thing. But Xiaomi doesn't. They're getting, you know, very small, slim margins on the hardware and they're betting that they'll be able to make money later on the back end. 
Apple really doesn't make that much money off the back end. I know that they make maybe a billion dollars, a couple of billion dollars of revenue from iTunes, from the App Store and all the other things. But that's not really the bread and butter of Apple. So I don't really think that you can compare the business models because at the end of the day, no one is locked into Xiaomi. That's the thing to remember. If you're an Apple person, you're locked into Apple and iOS. Android is very competitive. You can switch from a Xiaomi phone to a Huawei in a, in a flash, to a Vivo or an Oppo or a Samsung, even to an HTC if you want to, very, very easily. And that's the thing that you have to remember with Xiaomi. There's not necessarily any loyalty to the ecosystem. So not even with their Mi fans as well? Exactly. I mean, it's nice, but, you know, a lot of other companies have their own skins and their own overlays and so forth. You know, Samsung has one. I'm not convinced that it creates as much loyalty as a lot of people like to say it does. Tim, many thanks for coming on the show to talk about the Xiaomi IPO, but I know I'm going to book you on another conversation about the Taiwanese tech giants, TSMC, Foxconn, and all the other Taiwanese companies across the range. So you're going to be... Let's do that. And you're going to be back? I am. There's a lot to talk about Foxconn. We've spoken about it before, and I think we've, uh, we've spoken about it so many times, but there's been a lot happening in Foxconn since last we spoke. So I look forward to having that conversation. And by the way, do you know that that's actually my favorite episode of all time, the Foxconn episode with you? <laughs> I'm happy to hear that. Let's hope that your listeners feel the same. They do, they do. I got a lot of good reviews for that. So I think in the closing, I want to ask you two questions. First is to ask you, do you have any interesting recommendation recently that you want to share with my audience from books, podcasts to anything that might interest you? Well, you know what? I came across a podcast and I've got to admit that I'm, I'm late to this, but I really do like Reid Hoffman's Masters of Scale. I'm sure that a lot of your listeners already listen to him. But if you don't, do check him out, you know, wherever you get good podcasts podcast because I think it's fascinating and I really enjoy listening to, to his perspectives. So that would be one, one recommendation. Another I will plug, uh, I know you've had Brad Stone on before uh, and he's he, that was a great episode. So if you haven't checked out either of Brad Stone's books, his most recent one was uh, The Upsarts about Uber and Airbnb. I really recommend that. It's a great read just purely from a great kind of summertime read, but you might actually learn a lot at the same time. So there'd be two recommendations. I, I totally enjoy Brad Stone's book because I think one of the things that he really did is he really covered Uber's competition across the world, which none of the other American authors who have written on Uber did the same. So I think that's one of the key things that makes Brad's book much better than the rest. I agree with you. Absolutely agree. My last question, where do my audience find you? Not in Rice Conference, not in Texas, but everywhere else in the world. Yeah, I'm going to be off the conference circuit for a little while. The best way to find me is on Twitter. You can add me there. You can also DM me. So my DMs are usually open. Most of my columns are there and stuff that is of interest to me is also there. So on Twitter at tculpan, T-C-U-L-P-A-N is the easiest way to find me. Thank you. And you can Google me at Bernard Leung. Depends on how you will find me from Twitter to my personal website website you can definitely find this podcast on itunes stitcher soundcloud acast and google play in the u.s market and please give us a five star rating on itunes because that actually helps us in being discovered and the style on pocket cast overcast will also be greatly welcome too so once again tim many thanks and i want to speak to you soon thanks Adam.